Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As you know, if you've been here, we've been in a uh, year-long series on the book of Mark. Today is part 28, and we're going to look today, finally, at the rest of chapter 12, <laughs> uh, and Yeshua's debate with the Pharisees over Psalm 110, uh, which declares Messiah as being uh, David's son and yet David's Lord. So turn with me to Mark 12, beginning in verse 35, Mark 12, 35, and we have it on the overhead as well. While Yeshua was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the Torah teachers say that Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Yeshua said, watch out for the Torah teachers. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Yeshua sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts but a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Yeshua said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. On um, the overhead here, we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see Yeshua being opposed to or being against uh, three things. Uh, we see Yeshua versus or against uh, what I'm going to call uh, the culture wars, uh, Yeshua against the skeptics, and Yeshua against the cowardly. So first, the culture wars. Look at Mark 12, 35. While Yeshua is preaching in the temple courts, this is Mark's way of tying this passage into everything else we've already read throughout chapter 12, because all along, Yeshua has been in the temple courts having these controversies uh, and these debates. Uh, and so Mark is inviting us to survey now the whole chapter. And what we see in chapter 12 as a whole uh, is, and, uh, is this. Uh, John Stott, this famous biblical uh, scholar, in his book called uh, Christ the Controversialist, uh, points out this, that in these controversies in chapter 12, Yeshua is opposing both poles of human thought. On the one hand, he opposes the Sadducees, which today we'd call the secular liberals, uh, because they didn't believe in the supernatural, only in the, a life of kind of do-good niceness. But on the other hand, Yeshua also opposes the Pharisees, the religious conservatives. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural, but they did not emphasize grace. Rather, they emphasized rule-keeping legalism, uh, majoring in external rituals and traditions and, and outward compliance with what Yeshua called the lesser matters of the law. And these two poles of thought, uh, they show up again, uh, not just in the first century, uh, but also today, and not just even today, but they appear in most centuries, in most societies, in most cultures. 
we see in, in this perennial battle here of, of moral absolutes versus personal choice, uh, tradition and family and community versus individual rights and, and free expression, law versus love. And we've always had these poles, these spectrums, uh, but what's fascinating here is that Yeshua is against both. Yeshua refuses to fit into any human category. Yeshua faith is not an individualistic, create-your-own-reality philosophy, nor is it a, a legalistic, save-yourself-through-moral-conformity religion. It's neither. So then what is Yeshua faith, messianic faith? In a word, it can be summarized in the cross, the tree of life that became a tree of death. On the cross, we see the absolute moral justice of God being fulfilled completely by the loving sacrifice of Yeshua on our behalf so that we can be completely accepted in spite of all of our flaws, in spite of, in spite of all of our weaknesses. And this gospel worldview is unique. It does not fit into any human spectrum because on the one hand, it embraces moral absolutes. Uh, but because of, of radical grace and substitutionary atonement, uh, it also believes in embracing the weak uh, and the flawed and the sinner and calling them to repentance and to new life in Messiah. Yeshua faith promotes uh, having compassion on others, even your opponents. It just doesn't fit into any pre-existing category. So Yeshua is saying, I'm not a traditionalist or a progressive. Uh, I'm not a moralist or a relativist. Uh, I'm not secular or religious. I'm a whole new category. And he calls us likewise to embrace this whole new paradigm. So what do we learn from this first point? Uh, two things. First, you cannot put messianic faith into any one political bucket. Uh, it's too nuanced, it's too multidimensional, it's too rich, it won't fit. Because on the one hand, Yeshua faith embraces the weak uh, and the powerless and the downtrodden and the oppressed. Uh, and so some might try to label this as liberal. Uh, that's why uh, at the root of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement in the 60s and 70s, to overthrow racial segregation and discrimination uh, was the black church and the Protestant evangelical Christianity uh, and themes from the exodus and, and liberation and freedom and liberty. Uh, and so it's ironic today that certain liberal and progressive and CRT groups who reject God and reject Yeshua and biblical ethics, they want to reimpose a new form of discrimination and segregation based on race and ethnicity, and to judge people not based on the content of their character, but on the color of their skin. May it never be. So true biblical faith has these strong mandates to care for and protect and to defend the poor uh, and the powerless and the oppressed. Some label this as liberal, although I would simply call it biblical. But on the other hand, there are also elements in Yeshua faith, in biblical faith, that by the world's standards can be seen as profoundly conservative. That's why, for example, the Solidarity Movement uh, in Poland, which, uh, which, uh, which was uh, backed by the Christians and, and backed by the Catholic Church, and in, the, in, 18, 1980, in uh, 1989 overthrew the communistic, atheistic, socialistic regime and led to the spread of anti-communist ideas and movements throughout all of Eastern Europe. And of course, Yeshua faith is, is profoundly pro-life uh, and anti-abortion uh, and for the traditional family uh, and biblical sexual ethics and rejects the LBGTQ agenda. 
So that's why biblical messianic faith uh, is for helping the poor and the oppressed and fighting AIDS in Africa. And at the same time, it's against pornography uh, and same-sex marriage and the transgender push, push to allow uh, boys and girls bathrooms. The gospel simply cannot be fit into any one political bucket. It keeps breaking out. The gospel, it's simply too multidimensional, too different to fit into any one secular political category. It's just off the scale. It's off the charts. That's the first thing we learn from, from this first point. The second thing we learn is, is that the secular and the religious, though they fight, though they're at each other's throats, although they look like the opposites, from Yeshua's point of view, at one level, they're exactly the same. They're both wrong, and they're both alike. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're both wrong, and we'll get back to, at the end, how they're both alike. So on the overhead, first we see Yeshua against both sides uh, in these religious wars. Second, we see Yeshua against the skeptics, against his doubters. All through Mark chapter 12, Yeshua has been on the defensive. He's been responding to his critics, uh, their attacks, uh, their trick questions. But now he goes on the offensive. He asks the questions. Uh, he's surrounded by people who do not believe in him. So here he puts forth his argument for why he is the Messiah and fulfills the biblical requirements as such uh, and who he really is. So here's Yeshua's argument from the Hebrew Scriptures about his claims uh, to Messiahship. Look at Mark 12, verse 35. Yeshua asks, why do the teachers of the law, the Torah teachers, say that Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Ruch HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, declares, and now he's quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, in the Hebrew, Yudhe said to my Adon, uh, my master, uh, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Now what's Yeshua saying? First, Yeshua starts with a premise that, that everyone believed and understood that the Hebrew prophets predicted, predicted a Messiah who was going to come and put everything right in Israel. And the Jewish prophets also said this Messiah would be a descendant of King David uh, and would be, would be literally David's son, uh, David's descendant. And so Yeshua says, well, if that's the case, how do you explain Psalm 110? Because Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. And in this psalm, David talks about a figure whom God sends who's going to put all enemies down, all the enemies of God, uh, and, who's, and who's at the right hand of God, seated. And to be seated, Hebraically, is a position of, of, of authority and even equality. This is the Messiah. And he's putting all his enemies under his feet, uh, echoing Psalm 2 as well, which explicitly speaks of the Messiah, the anointed one, calls him God's son, uh, who is over all the nations and all the kings of the earth. And we're told, and when all these kings of the earth are, are told are commanded to kiss or to pay homage to the son. And, and back in Psalm 110, uh, this Messiah, the son of David, is called a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And he's seated at God's right hand. And in the original Hebrew, down in verse 5, it actually says that the Lord, Yudhe is seated at your, at God's right hand. You know, in the modern text, verse 5 says the Lord Adonai, uh, this means Lord or Master, is seated at God's right hand. But in the Masoretic footnotes, it's called the Masorah, the scribes actually say we change the text to, quote, avoid confusion. 
And that the original text in verse 5 reads, yud heh is seated at God's right hand, clearly referring to the deity of Messiah. So this Lord uh, of David's is the Messiah. And Psalm 110 opens with David saying in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, yud heh said to my Adon, to my master, sit at my right hand. So David calls this messianic figure, my Lord. And Yeshua is now posing this question, why would this be? You know, if David is foreseeing one of his descendants, one of his great-great-great-grandchildren, he would never call him my Lord. Rather, he'd call him my son. King David would never call his son my Lord or my master. So Yeshua asks, how can the Messiah be David's Lord and also David's son? How can David's Lord also be David's son? If he calls him Lord, how can he also call him his son? In other words, how can David describe one of his descendants as greater than himself? Because in Jewish categories, the son was always subordinate to the father. The son was never greater than the father. Uh, as marvelous as this Messiah would be, if he was to be David's son, he could not be greater than David in Jewish thought. Yet David calls him my Adon, uh, my Lord, my master. How can this be? Uh, who's David's Adon? Uh, who's sovereign over even the king of Israel? There's only one answer on the overhead. The answer is Messiah can only be David's son if he's also God's son. In Hebrew categories, the only one sovereign over the king of Israel is God himself. The fact that David calls his son my Lord here in this text here indicates that Yeshua is simply, isn't simply the son of David. He's David's sovereign. He's David's Adonai. Uh, he's David's king. The one before, the one before whom even David must bow. In Psalm 110, God is speaking to somebody else who carries this divine title. And in Psalm 110, God tells this messianic figure to sit at his right hand, to be seated at the highest place of authority in the universe. We thus read this in Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow uh, and every tongue confess that Yeshua is, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this is what Yeshua is saying to the crowd. He says to them, you have a view of Messiah that he's only human. You believe Messiah is just some political figure who brings liberation to Israel. But then how do you explain the biblical language in Psalm 110? The language makes no sense unless you realize the Messiah won't be just a human figure, but also a divine figure. This won't be just David's son. It will be God's son coming to David's line through the mystery of the incarnation. Where again, we read this in Philippians 2, Philippians 2, verse 6. Yeshua the Messiah, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So on the overhead. So Messiah won't be just a human figure, but a, a divine figure who comes not just to put down the political enemies of Israel, but to defeat the, the ultimate enemies of the whole human race, to put down sin, death, evil, the grave, and Satan for the whole world. 
Yeshua, in essence, tells the crowd, you all have a filter on your mind. You have, the, you have a, a human paradigm of what the Messiah is supposed to be like. But the Bible blasts that away. Only I can fulfill the person and the work of Messiah that the Bible actually reveals. He's saying, only I can fulfill this. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, he says this. The Jews demand a sign. The Jews demand miracles. Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Messiah crucified. And what Paul is saying is this. He's saying every culture has its own, use a big word here, epistemology. <laughs> uh, its own way of knowing whether something is true or not. Uh, and proving whether it's true. And Paul says in his day, the Jews were pragmatists. Uh, they said, show me something, show me a miracle, show me a sign, an unmistakable supernatural act of power. Then I'll believe what you're claiming. That's the ultimate argument, the ultimate proof for me. But Paul says, the Greek culture had a different epistemology. It was rationalistic, not pragmatistic. And therefore, the Greek world would say, give me a watertight, no holes, inescapable, logical argument. That's the ultimate proof for me. That's how I know what's right. So the Jews say, give me a miracle. The Greeks say, give me an airtight, logical argument. But when Yeshua has the opportunity to put forth an argument for his Messiahship, he refuses to put forth an argument that fits into any one culture's epistemological bucket. He refuses to do so. He, Yeshua can use reason, of course. He's using it right here in Mark 12. Uh, he also does miracles and signs. Uh, and there are great logical arguments for, for belief in God and the claims of Yeshua as the Messiah. And there are great evidences uh, uh, for the miracle of the resurrection. And there are many other ways of showing the truth of the gospel, uh, such as the testimony of the eyewitnesses uh, and the testimony of changed lives. So you have rationalistic uh, and miraculous and experiential arguments and proofs for the claims of Yeshua. But Yeshua actually does not give us any of them. Instead, what does he say? He says, I am the ultimate argument. Look in the scriptures. Put aside everything you think I should be like. Uh, put aside everything you've been told Messiah will be like. What you, what you wish I'll be like. And see me for whom I am. And if you read in the scriptures about who I really am, uh, if, and, and if you see me walking and talking and living and teaching and fulfilling prophecy and doing miracles, and you actually see me in the scriptures for who I really am, you will not be able to explain me other than simply to say you're not just David's son, but God's son. I heard a sermon by a British preacher who was talking about this man who had given up on his faith, who said, yeah, I'd love to believe but I need a watertight argument. You see, this man, this British man, was actually a Greek uh, epistemologically. Uh, he said, I'll believe the gospel if you give me an absolute watertight, inescapable, no holes, logical argument. I'm still waiting for that airtight argument. And the overhead, this is what the preacher said. He said, this man will probably wait forever. Because instead of God providing us with a watertight argument, God has provided us with a watertight person. A person against whom, in the end, there could be no argument. There are so many people who knew all these arguments for the existence of God. They knew uh, evidence for, for the miracles and for the resurrection. 
Her testimonies have changed lives. And yet, in the end, the thing that convinced them was that they, actually, they read the actual gospel texts. And they saw the life of Yeshua. And they had no way to explain him other than to say what he, what he said and what he did was true. And the overhead, here's what one former skeptic said. He said, I was shocked into belief by who Yeshua was. The real Yeshua, the Yeshua of the Bible, is full of surprises. But they're all the surprises of perfection. He's tender without being weak. He's strong without being coarse. Lowly without being servile. Uh, he has conviction without intolerance. Uh, enthusiasm without fanaticism. Holiness without Phariseeism. And compassion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step. No one has ever been able to even propose some word that Yeshua ought to have said, but didn't. On the overhead again, Yeshua says, I dare you to read about me, contemplate me, and try to explain me, other than, this, other than to say, this is not just David's son, but God's son. You see, if Yeshua had given some inescapable, watertight argument, it would have only have been true in one culture. Because every culture has its own epistemological criteria, its own way of knowing and proving what's true. But Yeshua is trying to give us an argument that will fit every culture. Even though we're rational, we're not just brains. Even though we're emotional, we're not just hearts. Even though we're volitional, we have a will, we're not just pragmatists. We are whole beings. So we need reasons and experience and testimonies and all kinds of proof. But ultimately, Yeshua says, this is the final argument. I am the water-type person against whom in the end there can be no argument. So get to know me, he says, and get to know my word. So if you today are waiting for a watertight argument before you begin to really study the scriptures, you're going to wait forever. Yeshua is there. Search the scriptures, get to know him, and you will find him. Yeah. And he fits all cultures uh, and all temperaments, not just the rational, not just the emotional, you must read the Gospels and the life of Yeshua and study them or you will never get the certainty that you need and you'll never overcome your doubts. Yeshua is saying, if you have doubts today, and who doesn't? If you struggle to believe, and who doesn't from time to time? Most of us do not believe nearly as much or nearly as strongly as we ought to. We all struggle with belief from time to time. But if you really want to do something about it, there's one more thing Yeshua says in this text that you need to know. And that brings us to this last little part uh, about the widow. Now, what's this story about the widow's might, uh, that this offering of hers, doing at the end of all these accounts of people who don't believe, uh, who are challenging Yeshua, rejecting him, who are skeptics? Why does Yeshua all of a sudden bring in this widow when he's talking the whole rest of the chapter about all these skeptics? Is it just a kind of tack-on, kind of an unrelated uh, thing that, that's unrelated, tacked-on to the, the end of the chapter, unrelated to the rest of the chapter? No, just the opposite. It's the climax and the completion of what Yeshua is trying to say. Indeed, you will never get the certainty and the faith you need in Yeshua unless you see what he's teaching us through this widow. So what is he telling us here? The first thing Yeshua does is he starts to rant <laughs> 
against all these people who don't care for the poor. You know, widows in ancient Israel were among the poorest of the poor. Uh, and Yeshua is talking to these religious leaders who make a great show of prayers but don't care for the poor. Notice what he says. Look at Mark 12, verse 40. Watch out for the Torah teachers. They devour widows' houses and make a show of lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Very strong language. What Yeshua is doing here, he's drawing on the Hebrew prophet's theme that God identifies with the poor. All through the Hebrew scriptures, we've got these strong statements where the Lord says, I identify with the poor. The Lord says, when you give to the poor, you give to me. For example, look at Proverbs 28, 27. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing. But those who close their eyes uh, to them receive many curses. Or Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they've done. Likewise, the Lord says, when you insult the, when you insult the poor, you insult me. Proverbs 17, 5. The one who, makes, who, who mocks the poor taunts his maker. And we see this over and over again throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. The Lord is saying, my heart is so bound up. My heart is so bound up with the needs and the misery of the poor, the widow, the orphan, that if you move against them, you move against me. If you ignore them, you ignore me. And he's, sure, he's drawing here on the strain of this prophetic teaching from the Hebrew Scriptures when he condemns these religious leaders who have no compassion on the poor and the widows. Indeed, there's this blood-curdling passage in Matthew 25 where he depicts the last judgment. And everyone is standing before the judgment seat. And the Lord is seated on his throne. And he says to the people standing on his left, those who are condemned before him, he says this in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 41. He says, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they'll answer, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't take care of you? Then I'll answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the overhead. Yeshua says, I so identify with the poor that when you reject them, you reject me. And again on the overhead, Yeshua is not saying per se that helping the poor saves your soul. But rather what he's saying is that if you have no room in your heart for the poor, it proves you have actually have no room in your heart for God. So Yeshua is talking uh, in Mark chapter 12 here uh, about this theme of the religious leaders' lack of compassion for the poor uh, and the widow. And then he turns to this, this famous incident where he actually sees a widow coming in, into the temple courts. People are coming in, they're giving their offering, and Yeshua is watching. And he's still, by the way, he's still watching today as we give our tithes and offerings to the Lord. He's watching. 
In Matthew 12, 41, Yeshua sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and, and, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth less than a cent. The word, by the way, here for the coin is, is lepta, which was the smallest coin in circulation, smaller than even a penny. Mark 12, verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, Yeshua says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Yeshua says, though the amount of her gift was the smallest, her sacrifice was the greatest. Uh, she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, by the way, this translation does not really convey the magnitude of what Yeshua actually says here. Literally, right on the overhead, literally what he says is this. She, out of her poverty, put in everything, even her whole life. Yeshua here literally says she put in her bios, uh, her physical life. She put in everything, even her whole life. She gave her life away. When the rich give, okay, let's be honest. When we give, we always give out of our margin, uh, our surplus. And because when our gift is done, are we eating any less? No, of course not. We don't give that much. Are we dressing any worse? No, of course not. We don't give that much. We give out of our excess, right out of our surplus. Are we traveling any less or taking vacations any less? Well, well maybe due to COVID, yes, but not because we're giving so much in tithes and offerings. We don't give so much as to actually cut into our life. But this widow, she gives out of her very substance, her very life. Yeshua says, when this widow put it in the last of her cash, she was taking food out of her very mouth. She was giving up what little control she had over her life. You see, when we give, we only give what we can afford to give without losing control over anything. We still do everything we wanted to do uh, before giving. Our giving has no effect on our lifestyle. But when she gave, she didn't just give her money. She gave her life. And she was willing to lose control over her lifestyle for the sake of God's kingdom. Thank you. Okay. Hallelujah. Now, why is Yeshua telling us all this? Why is he bringing this up here? Why is it here after all these debates with his critics, with his skeptics, I'll tell you why. You see, a big reason why many people today don't believe, a big reason today why many people are skeptics is not because they can't intellectually believe, but because they don't want to trust. They don't want to give up control. They're afraid of losing control. Our problem is not so much disbelief of the mind, but the fear of the heart. We modern, secular people uh, say we can't believe, but our, the honest answer is we won't. Uh, we don't want to, because we're scared of losing control over our lives. And this is how both the secular and the religious person are at bottom the same. Yes, they, they, they look so different on the surface. Uh, they're always uh, hating each other and fighting each other, 
You know, the secular person says, I decide what's right or wrong for me. No one can tell me what the truth is. I determine my own truth. And the religious person says, I'm going to obey God's rules. That's why, so he'll take me to heaven and bless me. They look so different. But this looks so different from the secular approach, but at bottom, it's not any different. Because neither of them are trusting. Neither of them are giving up control at all. The religious person is trying to control God through their morality, saying, Lord, you can't let bad things happen to me. I'm a good person. You, therefore, you owe me a good life. And the secular person, of course, is trying to control their life by saying, I don't want anything to do with God. You know, forget that. So both of them, in their own way, are trying to stay in control. They're both scared of truly trusting the Lord. They're spiritual cowards. They're both cowards. They don't have what this widow has, which is spiritual bravery, spiritual courage, and therefore spiritual love for the Lord. She was trusting God. She was giving so much, she had to trust God. Uh, she was losing control over her life. She gave her life away. And the overhead. And the reason that we don't believe uh, like we should, uh, the reason we don't connect to God like we should, is because we're scared. We're afraid of losing control. We don't trust the Lord the way we should because we don't want to give up control. And if that's the case, what are we going to do? How are we going to overcome this spiritual cowardice? The solution is to look to see who Yeshua really is as revealed in the scriptures. In the Hebrew scriptures, you see God identifying with the poor. But only if you come to Yeshua will you really know how radically God identifies with the poor. In the Tanakh, God says, if you insult the poor, you insult me. Thus, he, he's emotionally identifying with the poor. But in the Gospels, in the person of Yeshua, we see God literally identifying with the poor. Yeshua, in the incarnation, in the incarnation, came to earth as a poor man. He was born in a manger, an animal feeding trough. He was born to the poor Penniless parents who had a dedication had to bring the offering for the poorest of the poor to the temple. He says in Matthew 8, 20, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. When he was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, he didn't even own a denarius. He had to ask for one. And on the cross, he is stripped absolutely naked. He became absolutely penniless. Only Yeshua faith, of all the religions on the face of the earth, dares to say that God actually became poor, became exploited. Unlike the religious leaders who devour widows' houses, on the cross, he was devoured. He became weak. He lost control for us. So don't dare say to Yeshua, like they did in Matthew 25, Lord, when did we see you naked? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you a prisoner? Because he's going to say, are you kidding? On the cross. On the cross, I was stripped naked. I yelled out, I thirst. I was in prison. Why? Because on the cross, I, who deserved justice, got condemnation. 
so that you who deserve condemnation could get God's justice. I paid your penalty so that you could be saved by faith. And now you see that this widow is a pointer to Yeshua on the overhead. You see the widow, as wonderful and as self-sacrificial and as brave as she was, she only figuratively gave her life away. But when David's Lord became David's son, he literally gave his life away. He gave up his life. He was devoured. Uh, he lost control for you. So why wouldn't you want to trust him? Yeshua is not saying, please trust this remote God with your whole life. Uh, lose control for him. No, he's saying, I want you to trust and lose control for the God who came to earth and lost control for you. No other religion on the face of the earth says anything like this. And if you see him doing that, if you see him putting his life in the box, if you see him, him giving his life away, if you see him losing control for you, and if you really grasp that and see that, it will melt your heart. And it will give you the power to trust him with your life, to trust him fully and thoroughly and completely. June 30th, 1859, Charles Bondin, this famous French tightrope walker, stretched a rope across Niagara Falls and walked across. The first one ever to walk across Niagara Falls. A huge crowd watched him. He and his manager, Harry, said, this is great. Uh, let's promise them a stunt and do it again next week. Next week, the crowd was even bigger. Uh, he went across and, and did a stunt. Many said, next week, I'll do an even bigger stunt. And the next week, the crowd was even bigger. Well, what were some of these stunts? One week, he went across with a sack on his head. <laughs> One week, he lowered a rope to this passing made of the mist boat, and they tied a bottle of wine to it, and he hoisted it up and drank the wine while on the tightrope. <laughs> One week, he took a camera on a tripod and took pictures in the middle of Niagara Falls <laughs> on the rope. <laughs> One week, he bicycled across. One week, he took a wheelbarrow with a stove and a fire in it. He took it out uh, to the middle of the falls, made himself an omelet, and ate it in the middle of the falls, and, and walked back. <laughs> One week, he stood on his head, on the middle, on the middle of the tightrope. One week, he did somersaults. But at the end of the summer, he, he was running out of stunts. So to get the biggest crowd of all, he advertised that he would carry a man on his back across Niagara Falls. Over 100,000 people showed up to see this. This was even in the middle of, of the Civil War. <laughs> But he then to find someone willing to do this, to be carried on, their, on, their, on, their, on his back. So they put an ad in the paper promising $1,000 to anyone willing to be carried across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And there was a lot of money back then. Uh, a, a lot of men showed up for the recruitment uh, trial. Of course, they needed someone with a certain size and weight parameters. And so they narrowed it down to about 20 people who volunteered. They took them to the brink. Uh, and Blondin went out on the tightrope to show them that he could do it. He went out of the tightrope, and then he carried a 200-pound sack uh, and came back. He was an incredible acrobat. He absolutely proved to them there was no problem with him being able to do this feat. And then he came back, and he went down the line asking each volunteer this question. Do you believe, without a doubt, I can carry you across? 
And everyone said, absolutely yes. And then he asked them a second question. Will you let me carry you across Niagara Falls on my back? And one after the other said, no, not on your life. <laughs> everyone said, no, nobody would do it. <laughs> you see, our problem with believing is not just intellectual. Our problem is, are you willing to give your life? Now, what finally happened is this. Uh, after everyone bailed out, they had this huge crowd there. They had to do something. So the manager, Harry, had to do it. <laughs> Harry was absolutely terrified, but he actually did it. <laughs> but, but halfway across, Blendon started to sway a little bit. And Harry instinctively tried to sway the other way uh, to balance it out. Worst thing he could have done. <laughs> They're ready to fall. And Blondin yelled out over the surging waters below, Harry, until I clear this place, you must become part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you must rest in me completely and sway completely with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we shall both go down to our death. And the overhead. Blondin said to Harry, if you try to save yourself, you'll lose yourself. If you try to save yourself at all, you will lose yourself. And Yeshua says the same thing to you. And Blondin says, you have to rest in me completely, trust in me completely. And Yeshua says the same thing to you. And that's what it means to be a Yeshua follower. It's to say, Father... Because of the sacrifice of Yeshua on the cross, accept me because of what he has done. I repent of my sins. I rest and I trust completely in him. Uh, in me, I'm flawed. Uh, but in him, I am perfect. I trust in you, Yeshua, thoroughly and completely for my standing with God. That's what it means to be a true, born-again, messianic follower. Now, theoretically... Blondin could have dropped him and fallen. But Yeshua cannot drop you. Do you know why? Because he has already plunged into the depths so that you never will. Let Yeshua carry you today. Fully trust in and yield your life to him. Amen. I stand and pray. Let the music team to please come up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you today for this incredible passage. We assure, we assure you show us the deity of Messiah from Psalm 110. That Messiah, David's son, can only be his Lord if he's not only David's son, but also God's son. Yeshua, you truly are fully God and fully man. Thank you, Yeshua. You're not only David's son. Not only his son, but you're David's sovereign, you're his Adon, you're his master, you're his king. And you're also our sovereign, our Lord, we confess. You are our master, our Adonai, our king. For God so highly exalted you, Yeshua, that he gave you the name above every name. That at your name, Yeshua, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that you are God, you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we thank you, Yeshua, also for the story of the widow who gave her life away. She gave her all. She trusted you completely with her whole life. 
So Lord, help us today to have that kind of trust in you. We confess we often lack trust and commitment because we want to stay in control. We want to stay in control of our own life. We're scared of losing control and truly trusting in you. Lord, we repent for this self-centered lack of faith. You became absolutely poor and penniless uh, and naked and in bondage on the cross for me. You proved your love for me. You gave your life for me. So help me now, Lord, to trust you and to fully give my life to you. And I pray this all in your name, for Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.